quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We've been watching a briefing with Pentagon Press Secretary, retired Admiral John Kirby, And now we continue with our breaking news coverage because the United States is issuing a new warning to the Ukrainian government that the latest U.S. intelligence points to an imminent full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. American, Ukrainian, and other Western officials confirmed to CNN that this warning was presented by the U.S. to Ukrainian leaders in Kyiv, although a senior Ukrainian official noted that the U.S. has issued similar warnings before for attacks that did not ultimately materialize. New videos obtained by CNN show a further buildup of Russian tanks and troops along the country's border with Ukraine. The Pentagon also saying today that 80% of Russian forces are at a forward position ready to go, adding that Putin has two dozen warships and special forces prepared to attack. And moments ago, Russian state media reported that according to the spokesman for the Kremlin, The heads of the pro-Russian separatist regions in Donetsk and Luhansk have allegedly asked Putin for, quote, help repelling the aggression of Ukrainian armed forces, unquote. This is exactly what has been expected this whole time. Let's go straight to CNN's Nick Robertson in Moscow. And Nick, this is a major development, not unexpected. The moment that Putin said that he was recognizing these two independent states that are in Ukraine, it became really just a matter of time when these leaders of these independent states would ask Putin for Russian troops to come in. This looks, sounds, and feels like that pretext for Russian forces to go en masse into those separatist areas. Putin had originally originally talked about those Russian forces going in as peacekeepers. His ambassador to the UN today spoke of them as ceasefire monitors. This, I think, pulls back the veil completely. The two leaders of those two separatist areas, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, have written to President Putin. This is what President Putin's uh, spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peskov, has just said in the last few minutes. They have written to him alleging, and I should say here alleging because there's no backup and verification uh, that Ukrainian forces, they say, have been attacking civilian industrial complexes. They've been attacking schools, they say. They've been attacking hospitals. And if you watch the litany of... uh, if you will, propaganda videos that have been playing out on Russian TV over the past couple of evenings, you will have seen uh, Russian state reporters uh, reporting on an explosion at a TV station, a, an explosion, um, uh, you know, out on a road, an explosion at somebody's house, an explosion at a school. Um, there is no evidence that we've seen. Indeed, Ukraine denies that they have fired the missiles or set the explosives that have caused this damage. But it does seem now these separatist leaders are using it as a very thin pretext to bring in Russian forces, again, not as peacekeepers, 
not as ceasefire monitors, but to come and help them in the fight, as they say, to repel uh, Ukrainian forces. This is the moment, as you say, Jake, that many people have been warning might come. Yeah. And just to note, uh, the West, including President Biden, but, but other Western leaders have been warning that Russia would stage fake attacks, so-called false flag attacks on themselves so as to create this, this pretext that you're uh, alluding to possibly being uh, by themselves uh, that, that, that they're using to justify this. Nick, stick around. I want to go right now to CNN's Jim Shudo, who's in uh, Lviv, Ukraine. Jim, tell us more about this new U.S. intelligence that reportedly suggests that, that a wholesale attack on Ukraine by Russia is imminent. Jake, as you noted earlier, this is not the first time we have been in, in something like that heightened state of alert where you have U.S. officials warning of an imminent attack. What has changed during the last several days is that more of those forces have gotten closer to Ukraine's border and more of them, in fact, at this point, the vast majority of them, 80 percent, according to U.S. intelligence, are now in attack position. So, so the momentum towards an attack has increased during that time frame. Open question as to whether Putin orders it. But that force more threatening today than at any point so far in this crisis. A further invasion has begun. The Russian military is entering the separatist regions of eastern Ukraine, now recognized by Russia as independent. According to the information that's at my disposal, uh, Putin is moving in additional forces and tanks into the uh, occupied Donbas territories. The U.S. and NATO are warning the Ukrainian government that intelligence indicates a full-scale Russian invasion is about to take place. Ukrainian, U.S. and other Western officials tell CNN. And the Australian prime minister is saying an attack is likely as soon as tonight. Russia is at peak readiness to now complete a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and that is likely to occur um, within the next 24 hours. The U.S. has given such urgent warnings previously. However, the Russian military buildup has increased in just the past several days, with Russian armor building up near Ukraine's northeastern border. Satellite images show a new field hospital, as well as additional troops and equipment. This observed in Russia and in Belarus, just 24 miles from the Ukrainian border. A senior defense official tells CNN that 80% of the Russian forces near Ukraine's border are in forward positions, ready to go, some as few as three miles from the border. Russian forces uh, continue to uh, assemble uh, closer to the border um, and, uh, and put themselves in uh, uh, an advanced stage of readiness to, to act. The warning comes as the Ukrainian government has put in place a state of emergency for the country. And although Russian President Vladimir Putin claims there could still be a diplomatic resolution... Our country is always open for direct and honest dialogue for finding diplomatic solutions to the most difficult problems. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called off a meeting with the Russian foreign minister this week saying Putin was never serious about diplomacy. His plan all along has been to invade Ukraine, to control Ukraine and its people, to destroy Ukraine's democracy. Ukraine is already feeling the impact of Russia's power play. In recent days, the separatist regions have been firing shells into Ukraine, destroying homes, a preview of a full-scale invasion that could start at any time.
There has been times in this crisis when there's been daylight between U.S. and Ukrainian officials as to the urgency, uh, the imminence of a Russian attack. That daylight is disappearing. That state of emergency we mentioned, uh, it includes increased patrols, particularly around critical infrastructure here, things like power plants, bridges. The reason, Jake, is it's the U.S. intelligence view of this, that those would be targets in a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Jim, according to a senior Ukrainian official, U.S. officials warned Ukraine that they're particularly worried about a possible attack on the city of Kharkiv, which is outside the Donbass region, which Putin has declared to be two independent states. Going to Kharkiv, that would be an even more major escalation. Absolutely, because it would be outside, you know, really these uh, these fake independent Republicans that have now republics rather that have now been uh, recognized by Putin. So even further outside uh, land uh, that is sometimes called disputed, but still lies with inside uh, Ukraine's sovereign borders. And the reason there's so much attention on Kharkiv is because of the mass of forces that Russian has just across the border inside Russian territory, but close to Ukraine's border, including just a whole heck of a lot of tanks and armor, Jake. I mean, it, it is a truly harrowing force that Russia has amassed around this country. All right, Jim Shudo in Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you. Let's bring back CNN's Nick Robertson, who's live for us in Moscow, as well as CNN global affairs analyst Susan Glasser. Susan, you've heard Nick's new reporting at the top of the show. Russian state media is reporting that, according to the Kremlin, the heads of the pro-Russian separatist regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, have asked Putin, quote, for help repelling the aggression of Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, Again, the the evidence of aggression by Ukraine uh, is thin to none. Um, This is a massively significant and expected development. That's right, Jake. I think you're right to flag this. This could be uh, the beginning that the U.S. intelligence has has warned about. It's certainly consistent with the Kremlin playbook. I think we are entering uh, the next act in the play that Vladimir Putin has arranged uh, for Ukraine, unfortunately. Uh, it, It appears that Really, Ukraine is bracing for impact tonight. That's certainly the feeling I get here in official Washington, a sense that this is very, very imminent, unfortunately. And the question is, as you pointed out, uh, you know, would it be broader than just uh, moving in more aggressively and more overtly into uh, Donetsk, but actually to go beyond uh, those uh, sort of Kremlin-recognized statelets and into Ukraine, the rest of Ukraine itself, Kharkiv, is a major city of a million people. Uh, and again, you know, just thinking of the Ukrainian people today, it's, it's, it's worth taking a second and reflecting on a war that they did not ask for, that they did not initiate coming to their country right now because of Vladimir Putin. And Nick, we, we've heard top U.S. officials warning uh, that a Russian attack on Ukraine could be imminent. They've been warning this for weeks. Um, Does something make this warning that U.S. officials gave to Ukrainian leaders in the last 24 hours, something make this warning different? You know, I think it does in so much as Putin has now opened up a way to to push his troops into Ukraine, uh, into those separatist areas. 
uh, I think the fact that, that you know, that this whole confection of uh, the separatists asking for the troops to come in and support them in, in a battle that's purely of their own construction uh, speaks to that, speaks to how this is sort of moving to that to that end point. Uh, one of those separatist leaders in an interview uh, with a television anchor here earlier on today, a television anchor whom I interviewed just a couple of weeks ago, who is very, very pro-Kremlin. Actually, he, he faces the threat of international sanctions himself. So this pro-Kremlin anchor is asking this one of the separatist leaders, um, so this additional area, these additional territories that you say uh, are yours beyond, beyond the areas currently controlled in Donetsk, you want the whole Donetsk oblast, as it's called, province, uh, and some of it's under Ukrainian control. The question from the anchor was, well, what do you want to happen to the Ukrainian forces who are in the territory that you now want and call your own? Uh, and the separatist leader said, well, they should, they should just leave the area voluntarily. They should take their, take their weapons with them and leave the area. I, I think this gives us, again, another indication that these Russian forces are being invited in, not just to go to the line of contact where it is today to repel uh, so-called aggression by Ukraine, but to go beyond that bound and, and seize that territory that these separatists say is theirs and that Putin has recognized that is theirs, that is currently under Ukrainian government control. I think we begin to see the narrative that people were expecting would unfold is unfolding. And I think that's what further creates the impression that these warnings and concerns are very real. And I would just add as well to the tone that was used by the Russian ambassador at the UN today, giving, he said, a warning. I warn you, he said to the other ambassadors at the Security Council, including the US ambassador, um, that when we go in, we're not going to go in softly into these separatist areas, Jake. And let me just bring up the map again, because just I know people are, are just getting up to speed uh, in this. So if you look at the bottom uh, right-hand corner to southeast Ukraine, you see that uh, yellow and white shaded area. That is uh, the part of Ukraine that is controlled by separatists, pro-Russian separatists. Now, the entire region you see there, it's the Donbass region. It includes the Luhansk region and the Donetsk region. That entire chunk on the right, that is all of Donbass. And what Putin has done is said, He's not just looking at the part that's controlled by the separatists. He's saying that entire area, those are two independent states. And the separatist leaders in the shaded area, the yellow and white shaded area, they are now claiming the entire Luhansk region, the entire Donetsk region, and saying, Putin, bring in soldiers. We need help. And, and uh, Susan Glasser, the, the question I have is, the head of Ukraine's defense council said today, our army is ready to respond but the Pentagon said this afternoon Putin now has two dozen warships, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles, special forces all ready to go. And to be completely frank, if Ukraine cannot even hold on to that area uh, that is actually controlled by separatists and they haven't been able to hold on to it for the better part of eight years, they can't defend Ukraine by themselves. No, Jake, that's correct. Uh, and I think it's the strong assessment of the United States and other uh, uh, allied forces that there's just no reasonable uh, perspective for Ukraine to actually fight and win uh, a multi-front war with Russia inside their country, given the size of the force that's amassed. And it's not just, as you point out, in the Donbass, but uh, you know, across the country that they face the possibility of attack from the Black Sea 
to those troops in the north uh, who are in Belarus, only a few hours away from the capital of Kiev. And uh, so we don't know yet what the scope and scale of the Russian attack might be uh, if it comes, but it's unlikely to be confined just to the Donbass region. And the Ukrainian military uh, is not in a position to win this. I asked a military expert the other day just this question, Jake, and he said, look, their goal would be uh, to, to retreat in good order, to uh, cede territory in order to, to do so. But A, there's a limit to the territory. B, in, in eastern Ukraine, if you look at the positioning of the forces there, there's a real worry uh, that they could be, the Ukrainian forces could be encircled. Nick Robertson, Susan Glasser, thanks to both of you. We're following our breaking news. New U.S. intelligence warns Russia could launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine at any moment. Did the Kremlin just announce the pretext for that invasion? We're also taking a closer look at the Russian oligarchs that the U.S. just sanctioned. That's next. Stay with us. We're back with our breaking news coverage and what could be Putin's possible pretext for a full invasion of Ukraine. Russian state media is reporting that the Kremlin is claiming that the heads of the pro-Russian separatist regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, have asked Putin, quote, for help repelling the aggression of Ukrainian armed forces. Also developing today, President Biden moving forward with sanctions on the company behind Russia's Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. This comes one day after sanctions were announced on Russian banks oligarchs and their families, including some close friends of Vladimir Putin's here to discuss CNN anchor Aaron Burnett, who's live in Lviv, Ukraine, and CNN's national security analyst Beth Sanner, who served as the deputy director of national intelligence. Aaron, let me start with you. This is a massive development coming from Russian state media. It really could be Putin's possible pretext for, for an invasion of the entire Donbass, if not the entire country. Um, what do you hear? What do you expect Ukraine will do uh, in response? Well, obviously, some of our teams have seen some movement, you know, in Ukrainian military, but the Ukrainian government's entire response, as you know, Jake, has said to say, been to say that they don't expect a war and they don't expect an all-out war. So they have not done the military preparations that would be done if you were preparing for some sort of an all-out onslaught. Um, that, that, just, that just hasn't happened. That hasn't been the strategy here. So they called up reservists overnight and banned them from leaving the country, as our Matthew Chance has talked about, so that they would need to be there. You know, we've seen a lot of people here signing up for these uh, territorial defense brigades, as they call them, that they just really put into effect at the beginning of last month. But they most of them have uh, have not even started practicing. So so that's the reality, Jake. That's the reality on the ground. They're not uh, they are not ready to fight. It's not a fair fight. If you look at these two militaries uh, engaging with each other whatsoever. And Beth, what is your reaction to hearing this? This is what a lot of Western officials feared would be Putin's next step. It is really out of the Putin playbook. He did similar things in Crimea and in the breakaway republics in in Georgia in 2008. Right. Um, It is absolutely. When you look at the letters, I just saw copies of the letters on Twitter, and they are dated yesterday. Um, Prime Minister Mishustin yesterday also talked about how they had been preparing for weeks for the repercussions of declaring independence. This is all planned, all pre-planned, and it's just unfolding, um, unfortunately, exactly as the intelligence community has has laid out. And Aaron... Donbass, you know, now. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, so, so, you know, they're going to go into the Donbass, they'll start there, they will respond to these... um, 
these provocations as Nick laid out so correctly, um, and then it will probably expand from there. And Aaron, uh, you've been reported on uh, the oligarchs who are now facing some U.S. sanctions. Um, A lot of people think that it's not enough. Uh, it's not enough to dissuade Putin, and that seems to be borne out by what we're watching right now. But what can you tell us about who exactly has been impacted by these sanctions? Right. So the bottom line is you're completely right, Jake. It's not enough. But the U.S. government knows that. I don't think that they're trying to pretend that the individuals that they've sanctioned are going to stop anything. I think they were trying to send a signal that they were willing to go much farther. They sanctioned three uh, individuals, a a deputy chief of staff to Putin, uh, the head of the FSB, the Internal Security Service, Uh, and the head of a bank and two of those individuals' sons. But, you know, not broader family members and not a broader list of oligarchs, I can tell you. And, you know, there's people who are elite and important, and there's people who are incredibly wealthy and may also be elite and important, right? Oligarchs. And uh, the reality of it is, Jake, is of the top 10 oligarchs, if you look at Forbes, not a single one of them are among those that the White House has sanctioned. And by the way, you'd have to go way, 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 way down the list to get these individuals. So there is a lot more that can be done if you think that this path is a path that could put pressure on Putin internally in Russia. Beth, does it make sense to hold back uh, sanctions against oligarchs the way that the Biden administration is doing so right now? They say they don't want to shoot all their ammunition right now. They want to give Putin an opportunity to to stand down. Um, I've heard other people argue, really, this is not uh, deterrence at all. We really need to hit Putin and the Russian oligarchs where they where they live. I don't believe that any uh, degree or amount of sanctions will make any difference or would have made any difference. That's my perspective. Um, you know, Putin has a six hundred and thirty billion dollar, you know, piggy bank, rainy day fund. Um, he has been preparing for dealing with sanctions over many many years. Russia has enormous amount of sanctions on them now. So, um, you know, getting in the mindset of Putin, no amount of sanctions is worth what is his legacy and what is what he believes to be, you know, Russian history that he's setting right. Aaron, uh, the president of Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, has issued a state of emergency across all of the country. You're in Lviv uh, right now where there have been some emergency tests, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And Jake, that state of emergency that you refer to is slated to uh, formally begin in just under half an hour. And that will be an increase in police presence at government buildings uh, and other public places. That's that's technically what it'll mean. But after Zelensky announced that state of emergency here in Lviv, the city put out an announcement that they were going to be doing some tests to prepare people. Now, Jake, they say they've been spending the past several months as the Russians have built up their troops doing things like preparing for losing the grid, losing electricity electricity, all those sorts of things that they expect to happen. But today they practiced if there is no Internet and there is no television and there is no radio because Putin has taken all those out. What do they do? Well, they drive around in, in police in patrol cars and they speak out of them in loudspeakers. And so they tested that today. And, you know, as I've, I've been saying, we saw it. And, and and there was this literally at one moment, Jake, the police patrol cars going by and they're testing this. They're yelling at people what to do. And it's a test. But behind it is a trolley with Taurus in it. Not many, but Taurus in it. And that's that bizarre juxtaposition that we are still seeing so much here. Beth Sander here in D.C., Aaron Burnett in Lviv in western Ukraine. Thanks to both of you, Aaron. Stay safe. Be sure to join Aaron tonight. She anchors out front 
from Lviv at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. We're keeping an eye on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine here in the U.S. uh, It's not a surprise that Republican lawmakers are criticizing Biden's response to Russia, but some of them are going even further, a, a lot further. Stay with us. In our world lead, the crisis in Ukraine is escalating by the hour. A senior Pentagon official tells CNN that Russia is prepared to invade. And now, as CNN's MJ Lee reports from the White House, the Biden administration announced the toughest sanctions yet on the company in charge of building Russia's controversial gas pipeline to Germany, the Nord Stream 2. The Biden White House making preparations for an imminent full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. announcing sanctions on the company and its executives tasked with building the controversial pipeline Nord Stream 2, following on the heels of Germany's announcement to halt its certification. This as the Biden administration is taking aim at the assets of Vladimir Putin's innermost circle and their family members. We'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. The Treasury Department slapping individual sanctions on Putin's domestic intelligence chief, Alexander Bornikov, Putin's close advisor, Sergei Kirienko, and Peter Fradkov, the CEO of a Russian military bank. Notably, the sanctions also include those individuals' relatives as part of the U.S.'s strategy to prevent Putin's closest associates from shielding their personal wealth through their family. As tensions escalate, the FBI now warning U.S. businesses and local governments to be on the lookout for ransomware attacks launched by Russia. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, President Biden's handling of the Russia-Ukraine crisis prompting sharp criticism from Republican lawmakers. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying Russia's aggression is directly tied to the Biden administration's handling of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. I don't believe Vladimir Putin would have a couple of hundred thousand troops on the border of Ukraine had we not precipitously withdrawn from Afghanistan last August. But that's where we are, looking for signs of weakness. The former president also publicly weighing in with praise for Putin. And I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well, very, very well. The White House choosing to ignore those comments from Biden's predecessor. Well, as a matter of policy, uh, we try not to take advice uh, from anyone who praises President Putin and his military strategy. Now, in terms of a timing of a potential full-scale attack, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just said that she is not going to broadcast the potential hour, the day, the moment that this might happen. But she did say that the U.S. now believes Vladimir Putin has been improvising, has been adapting his plans based on the U.S. uh, broadcasting his war plans and that he has been caught off guard by the sheer amount of information that the U.S. has been sharing. Of course, all of this so far has not deterred Vladimir Putin from the beginning of an invasion. Jake. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss with the former White House communications director under President Trump, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and Republican strategist uh, Sarah Longwell. 
Before I start, I want to take a moment just to delineate between people who criticize President Biden's handling of this crisis in Afghanistan, and which is normal political uh, policy debate, and people who are lit- praising Vladimir Putin, uh, who is a murderous thug. Um, so I, I, I just don't want there to be any confusion about what I'm talking about, because former President Trump called Putin's moves genius and savvy. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that? Well, it's not surprising. Um, the former president had a soft spot for strongmen, including Vladimir Putin. We saw that throughout his presidency. But I would know, I think uh, the former president, as well as other prominent Republicans, are really taking their pointers from one place. And that's Tucker Carlson, Carlson's show on Fox News. He has become, become essentially an arm of the Kremlin in what he is talking about. What he is saying is indistingu- indistinguishable from RT propaganda. RT is Russia, uh, Russia Today, Today, the cable propaganda. Channel, yeah. And, and what's happening is some of these Republican officials who've taken this soft approach and actually praised Putin, they then end up in Rus- Russian propaganda a day later. And they know this and they know better. It's, it's concerning, to say the least. But I would say I think McConnell actually put out an extremely strong statement um, following the threats from Russia. And I think the, the, the smarter old school Republicans are in the right place on this. But there's a wing of the party that's very scary. Um, and, and Sarah, Congresswoman Liz Cheney tweeted this quote former, about what Trump said. Mm-hmm. Former President Trump's adulation of Putin today, including calling him a genius, aids our enemies. Trump's interests don't seem to align with the interests of the United States of America. Aiding our enemies, by the way, I mean, Liz Cheney is somebody, Congresswoman Cheney is somebody who uses her words very carefully. Aiding our enemies is a crime. Yeah, and she's right. And and frankly, what's so disappointing is that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are the only people that are talking like that. I mean, look, the last six years, if you're a Republican like me who doesn't think that Trump is a is a great person, it's felt like you are taking crazy pills watching this version of the Republican Party. I was born in 1980. I'm a, I'm a Reagan baby, which means, you know, a baby of the Cold War. Like, this is a total inversion of everything Republicans have, have ever stood for. And watching people, like Mitch McConnell's comment was strong, but he's not condemning Trump. Where are the people condemning Tucker Carlson, condemning Donald Trump, saying, we're not going to call him a genius at this time of crisis? It is, it is like a funhouse mirror of politics watching the way Republicans are responding. You make, you make me feel old. I just want to say for people out there, I, I was born in 1969, so I remember the Reagan era very well. Go Google Bear in the Woods ad. I remember that as if it were yesterday, a very stark commercial for Ronald Reagan about why he needed to be, I think, reelected in 1984 because of the Soviet threat. Right. And I think it's a sad time in our political discourse if people tend to hate their political opponent more than America's adversaries. And that's what the Republican Party is doubling down on. But that's what Republican voters feel, according to polls. They hate, I mean, they, they, uh, they approve of Putin more than they approve Well, of by the Biden. way, though, that's the direct result of Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns for years in U.S. politics. They have been driving a wedge in our political discourse for the last decade, and we're now seeing the results of But it's this. also because we had an American president who sucked up to murderous dictators, most specifically Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is nothing new for Trump. He stood on the stage next to Vladimir Putin and sided against America's intelligence community. And when establishment Republicans said nothing about that, that was when you knew everything was different. So the one thing that has surprised me in the last few weeks um, is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, praising Putin in the last few weeks. Uh, and that has you know, popped up on Russia Today and other back in, in Russia. Um, t- take a listen to, to some of the things Pompeo said about Vladimir Putin. He's a very talented statesman. He has lots of gifts. He was a KGB agent, for goodness sakes. He knows how to use power. We should respect that. Very shrewd. 
Very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. What was your response when you heard that? So Mike Pompeo has a long history as being tough on Russia and respecting Ukraine's sovereignty. I have to say that full stop because I actually I knew him in the House and his time as Secretary of State. So that choice of words is bizarre to me because he knows exactly how that's going to be weaponized by the Kremlin to say, look, even America's leaders are praising me and saying what a strong man I am. I don't understand it. I assume it's trying to, again, cater to this Tucker Carlson, America first crowd. But Mike Pompeo has been very strong in a, from an actual policy standpoint on Russia. So the words were very poorly chosen. What do you, what do you think when you saw Pompeo say I that? mean, I think it's nauseating. Uh, I, I just, listening to somebody like, he was the Secretary of State. Um, and giving, the head of the CIA. Yeah. Giving, giving that kind of aid and comfort to our adversaries. Um, I, I, look, I, I am, I am uh, surprised, or it's like, I'm, I'm shocked by all of this, um, and yet somehow not quite surprised. All right, Alyssa and Sarah, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. Coming up next, we talk to a CNN reporter who has extensively covered the region in Ukraine, bracing right now for a full-scale invasion by the Russian military. Stay with us. And we're back with the breaking news in our world lead, Ukraine's Donbass region, which most of it is under Ukrainian control. Uh, they're bracing for a possible full-scale assault from Russia right now. Let's discuss this with CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh, who is live in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. And Nick, we, we just learned that the heads of the self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk republics, these are the separatist leaders that control about a third of the Donbass region, they have, according to the Kremlin, requested help from the Kremlin in, quote-unquote, repelling Ukrainian forces from the area, even though it is Ukrainian territory. You've been to Donbass more than any other CNN journalist. Ex- explain to us the significance of this possible pretext. Yeah, essentially it provides the pretext for a broader Russian assault into the areas of Donetsk and Luhansk that are controlled by the Ukrainian military under the pretext of them somehow coming in and being peacekeepers to respect the newly recognized Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Remember that Vladimir Putin clarified that it was the oblast, the whole region of Donetsk and Luhansk, that he considered to be part of those separatist republics, um, even though only about a third of them are actually controlled by the separatists. Uh, this does two things. Firstly, it puts in sort of emotion now here, the possibility in this very clumsily choreographed series of false flag events we're seeing in separatist territories and then Russian responses that we may now see a sort of pretext laid out for Russian troops to cross in and provide that assistance. It also does one thing tactically too, which it focuses the Ukrainian military, whose might is mostly in the east, on the likelihood that an assault may come around these separatist areas. That's where a lot of their might and power currently is. Now, some Western officials have been warning that essentially the strategy here uh, for the Russians is to ensure that the troops of Ukraine in the east are kind of cut off from the capital, Kiev, and therefore an assault on Kiev by Russian troops in the north in Belarus would be significantly easier. If you continually talk about the east and the separatist areas as being where this military action may be, that certainly means Ukraine can't afford to take its eye off that. So that may be something in play here too, but really it's that clumsy choreography, Jake, of a request for assistance followed by uh, Vladimir Putin saying, OK, well, we have to come and save you from whatever crimes we believe are being committed against you. Right. Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Please be safe. We're following the breaking news 
What could be Vladimir Putin's pretext for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. We're live on the ground in Ukraine and in Russia. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, breaking news. Former President Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, is in talks to cooperate with the January 6th House Committee. But does that mean she will testify under oath? Also, more breaking news. New satellite images showing Russian forces and tanks gathering all along Ukraine's borders to the east and to the north. A former general is here to break down what that could mean. Plus, following the Putin playbook, Russian state media now claiming that the leaders of two crucial pro-Russian separatist regions in Ukraine are asking Putin to help them fight the Ukrainian military. This, as America warns the Ukrainian government, Russia appears ready to launch a full-scale invasion. Let's get straight to CNN's Matthew Chance, who's live for us from Kiev, Ukraine. And Matthew, Ukrainian officials say that they're ready for this attack? Uh, yeah, they do. Actually, within the last few minutes, I've had one senior Ukrainian official tell me that they're all on high alert, expecting this attack to take place uh, anytime soon. Of course, it follows uh, the latest warning that has been given by the United States, uh, indicating that they're in- telling the Ukrainians that their intelligence indicate a full scale invasion could take place imminently very, very soon indeed. Now, the US, the Ukrainian official that I spoke to uh, sort of cautioned that this had not been verified at this point uh, by Ukrainian intelligence, but obviously they are taking it very seriously. He did caution as well that in the past there have been several uh, warnings that are similar to this from the United States, which haven't materialised into any attack. But you know, I think what's different now is the tension that really exists uh, in this in this country tonight with uh, Vladimir Putin the Russian president having already recognized the rebel public republics in the in the east of the country and of course it comes as and this may or may not be a coincidence i suspect it's not uh, Vladimir Zelensky the Ukrainian president has imposed a state of emergency in the country uh, from uh, actually now from 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 this hour uh, that's what that's what will be taking place now across the whole country and that's going to mean extra security outside key installations like government buildings and uh, and transportation links it's also going to mean a curfew uh, we understand from in kiev at least from 11 o'clock uh, at night in terms of you know restaurants and you know nightclubs and bars and things like that and it's also going to mean that you know people who are in the reserves the military reserves who could be called up uh, for active service service will not be permitted to leave the country so that that gives us a good picture of the kind of state of readiness the country is in at the moment All right, Matthew Chance reporting for us uh, from the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv. Thank you so much. The invasion has already begun for many people living near the front line in eastern Ukraine. In recent days, the shelling and explosions have come closer and closer. CNN Sam Kiley reports from one small town in the Donbass region, specifically in the Donetsk province, where the odds of surviving could depend on where you're standing inside your house. It wasn't much, but it was home. And now it's as torn as the title deeds Irina holds in her hands. Her house was blown up by a shell fired from Russian-backed rebel territory on the day Vladimir Putin recognised the enclave as independent from Ukraine. When something like this happens and you have the threat that you're now facing from Russia just down the road, Irena has a daughter, Veronica, who's nine. This is the bedroom of Veronica. 
Luckily, she was in the kitchen lying on the floor when these shells landed. But it could have been so much worse. This shell killed Irina's neighbour, Roman, when it exploded about 100 yards from her front door. If you're living 500 metres from a front line, this is as bad a place as you could possibly be. That tower there serves as an ideal aiming point for any kind of artillery. Roman was killed outside his garage. Nadia, another neighbour, says that four shells landed the day Roman died. She and her son, who's 50 and a former Ukrainian Marine, fear that a Kremlin-driven escalation could result in an unthinkable tragedy. He lives in rebel territory and he may be conscripted into the secessionist army any time. This is the fifth day of heavy shelling in the area. The threat of a full-scale Russian invasion hangs over Roman's funeral. But disaster is what this frontline town has learned to live with. And is this what the rest of Ukraine may soon also learn to ignore? Now, Jake, uh, the, as you rightly pointed out there in the introduction, uh, the Putin-backed rebels uh, who've asked for Vladimir Putin for run Russian help now with their military campaign lay claim not just to the territory that they're occupying behind that front line so close to the town I was in, but actually the town I was in and the whole of that province. And as a consequence of that and this added intelligence coming from the United States, we have now seen significantly more movement of military material, including multiple rocket launching systems. These are Ukrainian uh, weapons, uh, not only uh, in this part of eastern Ukraine, but other CNN correspondents have been reporting this out of Lviv and elsewhere around the country. So things definitely seem to be ratcheting up, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley reporting live from Kharkiv, Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss live, Republican Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. He's the ranking Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He also serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, good to see you. So I want to get your reaction to this news that has just broken in the last hour or so. Uh, the Kremlin is claiming uh, that the leaders of the key separatist uh, movements in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass region, are asking Putin for help fighting the Ukrainians. Uh, what's your reaction? How much do you fear this will escalate the situation? Well, that's kind of the final step in this process. And that, that now opens the door for Putin to trigger his fake uh, mutual defense agreement that he signed with them. And this, this all, I think we're now hours, not days away from it. In fact, I think some of it's already underway Obviously, I'll let others confirm it that are on the ground. I'll let the Pentagon confirm some of this. But there's a lot of activity going on at the same time in Ukraine tonight. All the signs point to, to uh, you know, something unusual happening compared to other days. Uh, obviously, we'll see. But and I'll let others confirm it that are closer to it than what I'm seeing come across. But, um, you know, we're in the middle of something right now here tonight that's a little bit different than previous nights. Sources tell CNN that the U.S. has issued this new warning to the Ukrainian government uh, and to NATO that the latest uh, U.S. intelligence suggests uh, not just a, a Russian incursion into the Donbass region, which would be bad enough, but a full-scale Russian invasion, and that it's imminent. Um, you're the ranking Republican on the Intelligence Committee, and I know you can't disclose classified information, but do you agree? 
Yeah, I think Putin made a decision. Look, I've, I've long believed that he was going to conduct this attack for a lot of reasons. We don't have time to go into all of it. It would take about 30 minutes to walk through it. But the bottom line is that um, all the, check, the boxes he would check in this plan, he's been checking them. I, I felt like we knew, I, I can say this though, we, we've known for some days now that he's made it what's pretty much an irreversible decision at this point. And so I think you saw with the cyber attacks today, the implanting of malware and key systems, I think the next thing you would probably see them do is, is potentially try to seize a couple airports uh, so that they can fly equipment directly into the country. I think you could also see them begin to target um, air defense systems, WEPO and ammo depots and things of that nature. This will move pretty quickly once it starts. And we're going to lose some insight into it from a, the perspective of the media. I think you're going to see disruptions in social media, inter, 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 uh, telecommunications, internet connectivity, things of that nature. You just said that Putin made the decision to set in motion an irreversible process. You tweeted this also a few days ago. Um, so do you think the window is closed to resolve this diplomatically? And, and thus, are you anticipating that most, if not all, of Ukraine will soon enough be under Russian control? Well, I don't think the diplomatic window was ever open because he's made, he made demands that he knew could not be met. He made unreasonable demands. He, met dem he made demands that he knew the West could never agree to. In essence, if you read what his demands were, he was asking us to kick out at least 13 NATO countries, basically anyone who's joined after 2007. And that, he knew that wasn't possible. So um, I don't think there ever was a window. I think, frankly, Putin's been planning this. It didn't start last month or last week. This, this has been going on for over a year. And I just felt he felt like this was the opportune time. They got elections in France. The U.S. has got its own issues domestically and focused on China. Energy prices are high. Uh, Germany has a new leader. Uh, you know, the U.K. is going through some tumult in their political process. And I think he felt like this was the ideal moment to sort of take action. If he didn't do it now, the window could potentially close a year from now and it may not be there for him. So you say you don't think sanctions will stop Putin. If not sanctions, then what? I mean, the United States is not going to put U.S or NATO forces on the ground in Ukraine. So how does the West stop Putin, or is it too late? Well, I don't mean to sound defeatist about this, but the bottom line is if Russia has the military ability to take Ukraine, if it wants to take it, its problem is not going to be that. Its problem is going to be now it has to govern it. Now it has to stay there. The Ukrainians, there's a reason why you don't see millions of Ukrainians abandoning their cities and families. Uh, they're going to stay, and they're going to fight. And they're not just going to fight now. They're going to fight after the big invasion's over while these guys are occupying. This is, you know, I think if any nation on earth has, hurt, has learned how expensive and difficult it is to occupy a country that has a large number of people that may not want you there, especially long term, it's us. We know we've seen that in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Russians saw it in, in Afghanistan, too. And obviously before that, we saw it in Vietnam. So the, they have a real challenge on their hands moving forward. This is not going to be, you know, a little Crimea situation where they just occupy a place after a fist fight at a police station. I mean, this is going to be a long term deal. He may very well occupy large portions of the country, but he's not going to pacify it. The Ukrainians are going to fight him for a long time, and there's going to be a lot of dead Russians going home, and he'll have to explain to their moms why they died to occupy a place that didn't want him. So what do you think NATO should do? What do you think President Biden should do? Well, I think these sanctions should have been imposed. Frankly, I wish we would have imposed the strongest possible sanctions, which, which was on the two biggest Russian banks. I wish we would have imposed those in the middle of Putin's speech, which, by the way, was taped. It wasn't live. But right in the middle of that speech, we should have imposed it. We already knew what he was going to do. I'm not a big believer in this sanction as we go, you know, process. Beyond it, I think that they're making the right decisions about reinforcing uh, NATO's uh, eastern flank. I think that's an important commitment because that is indeed 
you know, an official red line. I mean, uh, and, and, and that's something that cannot be crossed. At the same time, I think it's incredibly important that the U.S. return to a policy of producing uh, domestic energy at a higher level than we've been doing. And uh, fortunately, the Biden administration has cut back on. It is these high energy prices, as much as anything else, that has given Putin not just tremendous leverage over Europe, but tremendous leverage over the whole situation. It's actually been of great value to him, and it's actually made us potentially vulnerable. So I hope we will return to that. And I hope we won't lose focus on the Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific region, which is where the critical threats to the 21st century lie. And I believe that our NATO alliance, with a little bit more contribution from the U.S. in terms of a forward presence, can hold back the threat of, of a further expansion in Europe. And I would say this, we should recognize the Ukrainian government, even if it happens to be in exile or in some rump portion of the country, and we should help them. We should help them to help those insurgents that remain behind the lines who are going to continue to fight Russia for months and years to come until their country is free. These are tough people. They will fight, and we should do everything we can to help them. And that, they're not asking for American soldiers. They're just asking for the weapons to fight for themselves and their families. Earlier, our correspondent Sam Kiley reported on how this invasion affects real people in eastern Ukraine and beyond, civilians living in fear, praying the next shell doesn't land on their home. What do you think the United States owes to these people, to these innocent Ukrainians? Look, these are heartbreaking scenes that we're seeing. And obviously, the United States is the most powerful country in the world. It is not all powerful. Uh, and that even in the peak of the unipolar world, we were not all powerful. And there are things that we couldn't control. These are terrible things that are happening. And, and I wish we could do more to stop it and, and, and prevent it from happening. Unfortunately, evil people do evil things in this world, and they should pay a price for doing it so that it doesn't happen in other places. Uh, it is heartbreaking, these images. There are a lot of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine that don't want to be a part of Russia, but they certainly don't want to be shelled and they don't want their kids to be forced, conscripted into some fake uh, country's army, uh, which is this, these fake separatist areas that Russia's created. And uh, it is heartbreaking. Jake, is one of the toughest things to tell you is that America can do a lot to help Ukraine, Ukraine but, but ultimately I think the future of Ukraine is in the hands of the Ukrainian people who I think are prepared to fight and make this a, a really difficult and painful experience for Putin in the long term. You've been very clear-eyed and sober in your conversations and your comments about what's going on. What's been your reaction when people in your party have praised Putin or, or said that this is all just uh, Joe Biden trying to distract from his domestic agenda, et cetera? It, it's so different from the kinds of things you're saying. Well, I heard a lot about the distract stuff a week ago from some people. I haven't heard a lot about that lately. It's clear this is real and this is happening. Well, I think we always owe an obligation to the people watching to explain why does this matter to America. It's not that it isn't bad. It's a terrible thing. But why does this matter to Americans? And it matters for two reasons. The first is we now live in a world where countries can decide, hey, that belongs to us. We're going to go invade it and take it. I think the world's going to get really messy really fast. And that's going to impact us here. As far as Ukraine specifically is concerned, I think it has a big impact on a lot of things, on global energy prices. We already have very high gas and energy prices. They're going to go higher. You know, Ukraine is a pretty substantial food producer in wheat and corn. That'll have an impact on the global food market, which ultimately would have an impact on us as well. They actually are the leading supplier of neon gas for our nascent semiconductor industry here in the United States. That's going to be cut off. So there are some uh, impacts there. But I also think, as you saw today, I don't know if you saw it, there was this uh, accidentally leaked uh, guidance or directive that the Chinese government gave to its official state reporters. It was talking about why they needed to support Russia, because one day we'll need Russia's support when the time comes for us to deal with Taiwan. Um, and, uh, and so clearly the Chinese are watching this very carefully to sort of figure out what happens when you take a place that you claim belongs to you that doesn't want to be a part of you. 
and, uh, and they're watching this to see what the price you pay is and what the U.S. reaction and our allied reaction is. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Thank you so much for being thanks, with us today. I appreciate it, sir. Sticking with our breaking news, next we're live in Russia near the Ukrainian border just north of the area where Putin could soon be sending Russian forces, plus new satellite images from Russia. We're examining what they may tell us next. Stay with us. In the world, lead, new video today showing Russia moving more military equipment near its border with Ukraine. The French press captured these images of convoys moving in and other heavy trucks already in position. This is right in the Donetsk region, which is part of Ukraine that Russian President Vladimir Putin officially recognized as an independent state this week, even though it's part of Ukraine, thus prompting sanctions from the West. CNN's Fred Plykin is also on the Russian side of the border. Fred, is there, is there any new evidence of Russian forces actually crossing into any part of Ukraine beyond the parts controlled by Russian-backed separatists. Well, so far, Jake, it looks like the Russian forces are still gathering, but there are some pretty ominous signs that a move could be uh, fairly quick in coming. It's actually quite interesting because we drove today pretty much the entire length of the Russia-Ukraine border, uh, the entire length of that area that is controlled by those separatists. So those two separatist republics, the Donetsk Republic and the Luhansk Republic. And there's really two areas that we saw we saw ominous signs of a possible move by the Russian military into Ukrainian territory. That's way in the south, near the Donetsk area, which uh, you were just talking uh, about right now, where we have heard reports that there's some convoys forming there that could move into that territory as fast as possible. Certainly, if the Russians move in there, they probably wouldn't encounter any resistance at all because, of course, those areas are held by pro-Russian separatists. It's actually also quite interesting. If you drive along that border for an extended period of time, there's areas where you see no Russian military at all, where there's no tension, nothing. We drove through some, uh, through some villages where they said that they hadn't even seen a Russian soldier uh, over the past couple of weeks uh, as all of this was unfolding. There's a second area, however, and that's where I am right now, where, where things do look as though, certainly look as though there is something up. Now, we've been driving here. The other side, the other, the town that's on the other side of the border here, the closest one is Kharkiv, and that's certainly one of the ones that the U.S. is extremely concerned about. What we've been seeing here is increased military activity and military trucks with their license plates on backwards. So you couldn't read what's on the license plate. So it certainly seems like the Russian military is on the move here. And it certainly seems like at least to a certain extent, they're trying to mask exactly what they're doing down here. So you can really feel the tension that's going on down here. Checkpoints as well. Uh, set up here, uh, as it certainly seems as though in this area, something is about to unfold, Jake. Fred Plykin in Russia near the Ukrainian border. Thank you so much. Stay safe. New satellite images of troop movement in Russia might also reveal what Putin could be planning. Let's bring in CNN military analyst, retired Army Major General Spider Marks. Uh, General, we're, we're now hearing leaders of the self-proclaimed independent areas of Donetsk and Luhansk have asked the Kremlin, according to the Kremlin, for help repelling Ukrainian forces what do you read into that as we hear about this buildup of Russian troops along the border? Well, truly what we see, Jake, is not surprising, right? Here's the area we're talking about. Russian troops have been there for about eight years. It's now at the point because of, because of the declaration by Putin of their independence and separation from Ukraine for the leadership in both of these areas to say we're having a hard time with Ukrainians. We need help from the Russians, the false flag scenario that we've been talking about. 
But there are a couple scenarios here. Certainly, you could see forces that could come across here. We've seen a lot of imagery over the course of the last couple of days in this area of movement of logistics and self-propelled artillery, et cetera, which would be in place to uh, provide value. What Fred just indicated is he's up in this area. And what the concern is, is this town right here. If Putin's objective ultimately is to go across the area where they currently have forces, to bolster that and build that up and really go after the entire Donbass. What he's looking to do is to protect the northern flank with forces that might come down this way and then also potentially to expand over to provide that land bridge into Crimea. That would give him the capability that he's been looking for in the near term. So, uh, General, you were commanding general of the U.S. Army Intelligence Center, so help us understand these satellite images from the same area that show a new field hospital on Russia's side of the border. Does that definitively suggest Putin is gearing up for a long-term conflict? I mean, a field hospital? Yeah, one of of two things. Here's the location of this piece of of imagery right here. Excuse me, Jake. Yeah, this piece of imagery is is right right here, Belgorod. What we're looking at here is a field hospital with support activity here and over here as well. So we can confirm that. But the real question is, Why there? Well, it's available if there is an offensive operation that comes in this way. You always prepare for casualties in combat. And, oh, by the way, you've got Ukrainian forces in this area. Not only are Ukrainian forces here, they're also in this area. So it's a preparation for that. Also, if we spend a lot of time looking at that, what's happening here? He may choose not to deploy that, but we spend time, we spend effort, and we are deceived by that operation. It could be deception on his part. And General, new satellite images also show more Russian troops amassing north of Ukraine near this airfield in Belarus. Earlier this month, the same area was completely vacant. So does that suggest Putin is focused on an invasion well beyond the Donbass region in the southeast? Well, again, this could be in in, in military terms, it could be a deception effort as well. As you can see, In February, nothing there. And here's the airfield right here with a lot of activity that exists right here. This is important because it does give him that capability to move to Kyiv if he wanted to. Bear in mind that right here is the Chernobyl exclusion zone, the worst nuclear disaster back in 1986. So for another million plus years, we're going to have nuclear fallout in this location. It's tried to be remediated, but I would hate to have to put soldiers through that in route Kyiv. But this indicates that what we really have, close-up view of that airfield, truly is the capability to move aircraft in and out. And then this really gives you a sense. Let me get this bad boy working for us here. This gives you a sense, Jake. Military capability, that's a ground capability. These are support vehicles that could be used in a ground assault. All right, General Spider-Marks, thank you so much. That's... uh Food for thought. Appreciate it. As the world waits to see what Russia does next, a new warning from U.S. officials that this could lead to one of the largest refugee crises anywhere in the world. Stay with us. In our worldly moments ago, the Pentagon announced U.S. troops who are currently stationed in Europe will be moving into the Baltic region just north of Ukraine. And just before that, the State Department spokesman said there is, quote, no indication Russia's backing down as the country is amassing more troops and weapons along the tense border. Let's bring in CNN's Warren Lieberman who's at the Pentagon for us, and Kylie Atwood, who's at the State Department. Oren, 
Starting with you, why are U.S. forces moving into the Baltic region, which is much closer to Russia? Well, Jake, the point here is not a confrontation with Russia. The administration has made it clear they're trying to avoid an encounter or a confrontation between U.S. troops and Russian troops or forces. But the point here is to make sure that these Baltic states, NATO allies, have their defense bolstered in the face of Russian President Vladimir Putin's actions and his words. These are Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. The U.S. sending a message here not only to the U.S. itself, but also to NATO and Putin, that NATO stands united and that the U.S. will stand by its NATO allies. In Biden's words, the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory. Pentagon Press Press Secretary John Kirby giving us a look into what these forces would be. An infantry battalion task force of approximately 800 personnel will be moving from Italy to the Baltic region. Uh, It's a movement of up to eight F-35 strike fighters from Germany to several operating locations along the eastern flank. A battalion of attack aviation, specifically 20 AH-64 helicopters from Germany, again to the Baltic region. And an attack aviation task force, which is 12 AH-64 helicopters will move from Greece to Poland. So not just troops, but also Apache attack helicopters, F-35 fighter jets going to the Baltics, and also to the southeast uh, part of Europe on NATO's eastern flank there. Again, that message of unity that uh, Putin will not find discord or division as he moves or threatens to move further into Ukraine here. Uh, The Pentagon also making it clear there are 90,000 troops already in Europe, and that although there is no plan to send more in right now from the U.S. to Europe, that option remains on the table as do 8,500 troops on heightened alert should NATO choose to activate its NATO response force. And Kylie, what is the U.S. saying, what is the State Department saying about the possible humanitarian effects of a full-scale war, which obviously no one except maybe Vladimir Putin wants? Yeah, well, listen, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, gave an impassioned plea at the United Nations today, urging countries to come together to isolate Russia as they maintain this aggressive posture. And as uh, she delivered those remarks, she was very clear in detailing what the human cost, what the humanitarian crisis is going to look like if Russia goes forth with this full-scale invasion, not just in Ukraine, but outside its borders. Take a listen. If Russia continues down this path, it could according to our estimates, create a new refugee crisis, one of the largest facing the world today, with as many as five million more people displaced by Russia's war of choice and putting pressure on Ukraine's neighbors. The tidal wave of suffering this war will cause are unthinkable. Now, Jake, we have heard U.S. officials detail what these humanita- what this humanitarian crisis could look like before, but it does feel more ominous tonight because there's increased concern on behalf of U.S. officials and European officials about what Russia may be able to do right here. We heard uh, this afternoon from a senior Defense Department official saying that 80 percent of those Russian forces that have amassed along Ukraine's borders are in positions to go forward. They are ready to go in. So that is very concerning as U.S. officials watch to see what orders Putin has in store. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. We have more breaking news. Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, is in talks to testify before the January 6th House Committee. How How soon might that happen? That's next. 
In our politics lead, one of former President Trump's closest confidants could soon voluntarily appear before the House committee investigating the deadly January 6th Capitol attack. Ivanka Trump is in preliminary discussions, we're told, with the select committee about the possibility of testifying, according to a spokesperson for Ivanka Trump, who was also, of course, a former White House advisor. CNN's Paula Reid joins us now live with more on this. Paula, even if Ivanka Trump voluntarily appears, that does not mean she's necessarily fully cooperating, right? That's exactly right, Jake. Over a month ago, the committee sent Ivanka a letter requesting her voluntary cooperation with this investigation and laying out exactly why they believe she is such a critical witness. They've said they want to talk to her about what she observed in terms of interactions between her father and former Vice President Mike Pence. According to the committee, she was a witness to a call between those two men on the morning of January 6th. They also want to talk to her about what was going on inside the White House during the insurrection and the days after. But look, this engagement between her team and the committee, it doesn't necessarily mean that she is going to provide any substantive evidence. I mean, this could potentially be a stalling tactic, Jake, or it could be part of an effort to undermine any claims that she has stonewalled the committee, which, of course, could potentially open her up to criminal contempt proceedings, which we've seen with other witnesses who did not engage. But it is significant here that a member of the Trump family is at least willing to engage with the committee, particularly as lawmakers are trying to reach in to Trump's inner circle. And, and Paula, speaking of investigations, uh, there's news today that two top prosecutors working on the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into the Trump organization, these two prosecutors resigned today. What's going on with that? A significant development at a critical stage for this investigation, CNN has learned that Carrie Dunn and Mark Pomerantz both submitted their resignation to the district attorney's office. Now, the Manhattan DA, in a statement, insists that this years-long investigation into the Trump organization continues, but the reasons for these resignations are still unknown. Now, according to the New York Times, these resignations come as the newly installed district attorney, Alvin Bragg, has expressed some doubts about moving forward with a case against former President Trump. And according to the Times, these doubts have prompted a pause in investigators' use of a state grand jury. We know from our reporting that investigators have been using that grand jury to build the cases they have brought. Of course, last summer, the Manhattan District Attorney charged the Trump Organization in a 15-years-long tax fraud scheme, also charged one of its top executives, Alan Weisselberg, with tax fraud. Now, the district attorney has previously said this investigation, this is consequential and something that merits his personal attention. Now, what that means for the future of his investigation and for any potential charges against the former president is unclear, Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Here to discuss former assistant U.S. attorney and University of Baltimore law professor uh, Kim Whaley. She is the author of the just-released book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Kim, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Good to see you again. So, Let's start with the, the January 6th committee testimony from Ivanka Trump would, would theoretically bring the committee well inside Trump's inner circle and to his family. Um, she reportedly tried to convince her father to take actions to tell the rioters to, to stand down, to leave the Capitol. Do you think she will testify? How significant could her testimony be? I think she will testify. I agree with Paula. It's unclear what the scope of that will be, but I think she realizes these these claims of privilege and the, the things that Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows and others have been trying to use as a shield to cooperating aren't working. So it's hard to know, of course, what the scope will be. But as Paula described, 
What the committee wants to know is what was inside Donald Trump's mind at the time. What was his intention around all of that? Was he just acting like the Trump, the mercurial guy, or was he really trying to thwart an election, which arguably is a crime? Well, and speaking of what's in his mind and 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 scheming and planning, um, John Eastman is this uh, prominent attorney in former Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He spoke at the January 6th rally. He's the one that came up with that crazy Eastman memo, you know, with this unconstitutional scheme uh, for Pence to to basically to, to to install Trump as president, even though Biden won. He now claims he was hired to represent Trump two months before the election. Now, he says he this was uh, to prepare for post-election litigation. Is this proof that this was all premeditated or, or no? I don't think that's proof of premeditation. Uh, I think the facts are largely out there. That is that they wanted to thwart the election. If you read his memo, it's a disaster from a legal perspective. Uh, as I talk about in my book, lawyers focus on laws and and facts because we have to. We'll we'll lose in court if if we don't. This is really about him being able to claim I was Trump's lawyer because we have something out there called the attorney-client privilege, and that can really clamp down on access to evidence. So if he wasn't his lawyer, he can't even argue that. If he was his lawyer, then the question is whether it was confidential or the next step would be if they're engaged in a crime. If they're engaged in a crime, everything's out the window. But again, this is an effort to keep information uh, from the January 6th committee. Right. But by the I, I totally hear you. Um, but the scheme was out there from the very beginning, right? We knew this in the fall before the election. Trump was saying that any votes uh, that were being counted after election night were bogus. He was saying that election, uh, that the absentee ballots were were fraudulent inherently. Uh, I mean, it was all not just predictable, it was predicted. We knew he was going to come out that night. It was reported a few days ahead of time he was going to come out and declare victory. Right. I mean, there is a closet full of smoking guns when it comes to what happened on January 6th. No one questions really what happened. Uh, you know, this is not something lawyers often see, this kind of hiding in plain sight, you know, doing these things openly, blatantly, lying about the law. Uh, but it's going to come down to accountability. And we have two pieces. We have the January 6th committee. I happen to think that they their job when they have public hearings in the spring is to educate the American people as to what really happened. And then really it comes down to what will the Justice Department do, if anything, once we all get sort of used to the idea that there could be criminal liability for a former president, will uh, the Justice Department take action? That's going to depend on whether they feel like they can win a case beyond a reasonable doubt and uh, and sort of the political appetite for that. But of course, Merrick Garland's going to be uh, attorney general regardless of what happens with the midterm. So that's that's really, I think, the long run game here is whether that's going to kick in in some way. What do you make of all the progressives griping that Merrick Garland hasn't been uh, forceful enough that he he hasn't done anything with Mark Meadows, uh, who who uh, you know is re, re, you know is refusing to cooperate with the committee and has been um, indicted uh, or what's the term I'm looking for? By yeah, the, he's he's well, he's he's he hasn't you know uh, Bannon's been indicted. They haven't taken the steps. They haven't indict. indicted him. They right. did make a recommendation. Um, you know, the honestly, House voted the right. House to hold him in criminal contempt. Right, and then it sort of yeah. goes to the Justice Department. They've right. taken that up. You know, again, I, I kind of think the Justice Department understands that right now, as Jamie Raskin has said, he has said that, quote, they'll blow the lid off the House with this new information. That means, Jake, we know a lot, just like you said, but we're going to learn more. 
And I think until we learn more, it's really hard to say what should be appropriate for Merrick Garland. And of course, we don't know what they already know. So I think it's really got to be careful about sort of throwing stones at this when we have incomplete information. Again, something I talk about in the book of uh, facts that are verifiable do matter. What book is it? It is Kim Whaley's brand new book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. Thank you so much for being here, Kim. Great to see you. As always, coming up, a new report says everyone in the world is going to have to learn to live with fire, and there's no way around it. That's next. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, it is time for the world to, quote, learn to live with fire. That is according to a Watershed United Nations report released today. The report concludes that the likelihood of hotter, more intense and more destructive wildfires will surge by 14% by the end of the decade, 30% by 2050, and 57% by the end of the century. And there is, according to this report, little, if anything, we can do to stop the near-term consequences fueled by the human-caused climate crisis. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now live to discuss, Bill, what does learning to live with fire mean for the communities out west, especially that frequently experience these fires? Well, it's coming to grips with the idea that uh, fire season is now year-round, that it is burning in places typically it wouldn't, in wetlands, in in tundra areas, in high-elevation alpine rockies uh, are burning like never before. It's it's coming to embrace indigenous wisdom, the Native Americans who learned to live with fire as a natural needed part of nature, as vital as rain, uh, all of that was sort of res- suppressed ever since the pioneers. And at the same time, we built developments in these sort of wilderness interfaces, making them super vulnerable. So the only thing that could be done is to fortify those communities, new uh, zoning laws, new maybe construction by- bylines, and really educating the public about clearing brush around the house, trying to get fireproof gutters on the house, and, and trying to prevent them best you can. But at this point, there's so much fuel out there, whether it's lightning or whether it's sparks from a flat tire or, or grill embers, um, they're just going to happen more frequently, unfortunately. When we talk about uh, efforts to combat climate change, uh, often people talk about the price tag uh, of the legislation um, being proposed. In the United States alone, however, the cost of fighting these fires, just these fires, has shot up to $1.9 billion just last year. That's more than a 170% increase over the previous decade. Are there any signs that lawmakers are grasping the economic consequences of doing nothing about climate change? You're seeing it on the local levels in counties, you know, up in sort of northern central California, around paradise there. Uh, yes, where, where in, a, in a state also where private firefighting is a booming industry because the publicly financed local municipalities or Cal Fire can't keep up. It's a mutual aid system out there where I'll help put out your town if you help put out mine. But if both towns are burning, who does it? Uh, so, yeah, this, this takes a whole new mind sh- shift. And, and a lot of that will be sort of led by insurance markets uh, where they're redrawing the way cities are zoned. If they say, I'm sorry, it's too dangerous. It's too fire uh, prone. You're going to have to cover your own risk. That will make people change their ways. And that's just the economic cost I was talking about. Fires are obviously incredibly harmful to public health beyond the deaths from fires. A recent study found that increases in dust and small particles from wildfire smoke in 2020 led to a surge in COVID cases and deaths in California, Oregon, and Washington. So how should people who live in fire-prone areas protect themselves health-wise? They're not, they're not going to like the answer. Uh, unfortunately, it's masks. 
You know, I, my, my little boy was a pandemic baby and we couldn't find masks to go into delivery. And, but I remembered I had one from covering the fires in California. So uh, as my boy was born, it was a fire mask. And now, sadly, as we move out of pandemic, that may be the, the normal in this world they're describing. People who lived in San Francisco all the way up to Seattle and, and Vancouver saw how the skies out there turned this like Blade Runner orange there. And yeah, that particulate matter, even the ones you can't see from air pollution kills millions of people a year. But uh, just another thing uh, to worry about. And it's that dry heat, as we talked about, and how dry it gets and how bad it gets still, though, is in control of policymakers today. All right, Bill Weir, thank you, as always, for your coverage. We're following the breaking news in Ukraine as Ukrainians are bracing for what could be a full-scale invasion by Russia. Stay with us. We continue to follow the breaking news, the U.S. warning Ukraine of an imminent full-scale invasion by Russia. That coverage continues in just moments until then. And until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.